0: You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 19th of February 2024 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Coming up on today's programme, Ursula von der Leyen gets ready to run for a second term as European Commission President.
1: It is time for Europe to once again think big and write our own destiny.
0: In the midst of allegations of a cover-up after refusing to release Alexei Navalny's body to his family, Russia's Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov embarks on a trip to Latin
2: America. And fresh from Germany, Andrew Muller is here. I am. I am just back from the Munich Security Conference, where obviously the subject of Alexei Navalny came up once or twice. I will be discussing that and what else we learned.
0: Plus, we reflect on London Fashion Week and Preview Milan Fashion Week with Monocle's fashion editor. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Vincent McIvinney. But first, in the past hour at a press conference in Berlin, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen has announced she will be seeking a second five-year term in office – when she was appointed in 2019, she was little known, but her experience as Germany's defence minister has come in handier than she might have first expected. Joining me now in the studio is Nina Dos Santos, international broadcast correspondent and former CNN Europe editor. Um, Nina, this was widely expected, but is her victory secured, do you think?
3: Well, I think considering as she's part of the EPP, the European People's Party, which is the biggest bloc in the European Parliament, the centre-right bloc, if you like, her CDU party that's very much championing her candidacy here. Um, you know, the numbers probably stack up in her favour and I think that there's probably going to be a wish broadly speaking inside the European political machinery for at turbulent times like this to have some kind of continuity candidate. Um, More broadly, having remembered sitting in on the first press conference that she ever held um, back in 2019, um, Vincent, in Brussels um, at the helm of the European Commission, you know, she's changed hugely, that's my uh, observation here, because she's had to adapt to the times. This is a woman who I remember first interviewing way before before she was Defence Secretary in Germany which by the way uh, she had a bit of a potted record for I would add though that Germany's defence landscape has changed radically since her time there but I remember first meeting her when she was I think the Labour Minister or Industry Minister of Germany Um, and she is a woman who's had quite a bit of experience actually it's easy to forget because she's quite a discreet uh, person she's been in five of Angela Merkel's uh, cabinets at one point Angela Merkel wanted to champion her as her heir apparent if you like and a lot of that experience has stood her in good stead since 2019 when she took up the helm for the first uh, uh, presidency of the European Commission. You know, she's had to deal with the pandemic, the war in Ukraine, getting tougher on countries like Russia and also one of the things I would say, though, is that her big legacy is going to have to pivot in another term. She's going to have to move away from that big mandate of a green energy transition that she wanted to be her legacy. But I think now the appetite for that has waned enormously.
0: Mm. Uh, lots of unexpected challenges in her first term, in particular, of course, the war in Ukraine, the pandemic, you've mentioned those. In terms of her performance report card, uh, you know, initially, she was seen to be a little bit stumbling. But did she find her feet in the face of those big challenges?
3: I think it's been difficult for her her um in the sense that you know there's been a rise in populism in the EU again subjects like um you know immigration have come right back to the fore uh the EU's had a really difficult time with some irksome uh, neighbors towards the east not least Russia but even some of them that are inside the EU and NATO apparatus which by Hungary. the way go hand yep. in hand I'm yep. thinking of Hungary which by the way is no longer part of the European people's Party the EPP uh, it's drifted off into its own orbit perhaps uh to the relief some might say of um people inside the EPP at the moment, not least Ursula von der Leyen, who, you know, has also seen um, Poland come slightly back towards the Mm. centre-right as well, from the the further right. The victory. Exactly, in the last few months. Um, And so all of those things she will not have been able to control. But one of the things that, you know, she has been able to do is sort of bring in an element of sort of, if you like, this sort of professional rigour in certain parts of the EU. I'm thinking notably some of the competition probes that we've seen that have been quite feisty Mm. against... uh, leading the uh, way when it comes companies. to technologies
0: like AI and social media exactly. as well.
3: That's right, yeah, with uh, sort of the, the data landscape that we have in the EU and taking on big US tech firms as well, keeping them, you know, to heel, if you like, uh, because at the end of the day and also, um, you know, agrarian policy too, because at the end of the day you know, I'm speaking often to CEOs of some of these companies here in Europe, they'll say well look, this is the biggest market for consumers here, you know, hundreds, more than three, 400 million people people inside the EU. And sometimes they vote with their feet. They don't want things and they're a bit more vocal about it than our uh, transatlantic neighbours. And people like Ursula von der Leyen will know that full well. The other thing I would say, Vinny, is that, you know, at the end of the day, you have to remember that these multilateral institutions are very often run on country specific bases. And the Franco-German axis of power inside the EU is sacrosanct. It's just part of the way how the mm. machinery works. You remember that David it Cameron... Built for. And it was built for, and her father by the way, Albrecht, uh, was one of the key uh, people who built that apparatus. She was brought up in Brussels. Her father worked for the EU. So the EU project and the peace that it's brought in economic prosperity to Europe is very much a key part of Ursula von der Leyen's um, inner being. And I think that's probably what she'll fight for in the future. But she'll need to pivot to uh, dealing with some difficult uh, subjects, not least one, Donald Trump, if he becomes the next mm. president of the United States, which may well happen. He's already, ahead of the Munich Security Conference last week, you know, started firing the death knell at Lato's security uh, collective security
0: And we know his character is he doesn't really have much truck for female leaders as well.
3: Well, no, indeed. Her former boss, Angela Merkel, got short shrift by him.
0: And Theresa May. And, and
3: Theresa May. And I would say Ursula von der Leyen also might appear as a more delicate character than them. She's physically quite petite. She's very discreet in how she deals uh, uh, with uh, other leaders. But that doesn't mean that she doesn't have rigour and she doesn't have the backing of some of her other um, EU member states and the respect from them. I think there's a recognition, more broadly speaking, inside Brussels, though, that... uh, all EU leaders are going to have to get real and come together to think about how to deal with the future Trump presidency if he decides to undermine institutions like NATO from within. Mm. Because obviously, and this is crucially important for Germany, Germany has traditionally up until now relied upon the United States to be the big member of NATO to guarantee security because of Germany's history in the Second World War. It hasn't wanted to play an active role in defence or indeed in uh, foreign policy, but that has changed and she will be crucial to that because she says she wants to have a new defence commissioner in her new term.
0: And it wasn't just Germany itself not wanting to be. Other countries purposefully did not want Germany to go down a militarisation path. So it put all its time and resources into, you know, becoming the biggest economy in Europe. Looking at her second term, do think that that is going to be the, the focus now you said she'll have to pull away from green transition much more focus on defence maybe getting all the European NATO members up to that 2% target but do you think we might see talk again of a EU army that there's talk of an EU defence commissioner being something that she wants now?
3: Yes yeah, she said that she wants an EU defence commissioner picking up on um, kind of points that France for instance by the way which is a huge maker of weaponry by the way and also probably with one of the more powerful armies anywhere in the world biggest second biggest nuclear a deterrent, if you like, um, you know, they've very often talked about how Europe needs to get its act together. You can't just rely upon NATO. Germany is, for the reasons that you mentioned, and thank you, by the way, for adding to the nuance, because it is important that other countries um, up until more recently um, didn't want Germany to, you know, uh, play a more active role. Germany then became loath in playing that active role. France tried to push. Now, what we've seen actually at the Munich Security Conference is actually the German Foreign Minister... Stepping back from that... more ambitious defence spending targets. Christine Lindler said, the finance minister, sorry, said, you know, yes, 2% of GDP, frankly, for us, is already quite enough. You're seeing other states inside the EU saying, no, we need to be spending more. So that's one of the things she's going to have trouble with, trying to find the money, uh, collective money as well, because some Baltic countries have said that it would be worth having a 100 billion uh, euro fund issuing bonds collectively to try and pay, to give weapons to Ukraine, if you like, to help defend Europe's eastern border mm. from outside Which is the border. traditional
0: model for big wars. I mean, you know, the UK is still paying off debts, I think, from the Second World War. It only paid off debts from the First World War about five years ago.
3: Yeah, but it's no longer part of the EU, isn't it? No, so no. <laughs> but,
0: but as in the, the model yeah. for funding these kind but of things, yeah. But,
3: but when you have so many member states that have to get together to agree to all of this, finding the consensus in the room is going to be difficult. But look, she's got a lot on her plate, but at the end of the day, it's likely this may be a rubber stamping effort from the European People's Party when they get together on the 6th of March in Bucharest, Vincent.
0: Nina De Santos, thank you very much for joining us here on The Briefing. Now here's Carlotta Rebello with today's other news headlines.
4: Thanks, Vincent. Yulia Navalny, the widow of Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny, who died in Russian custody, will meet European Foreign Affairs Minister today in Brussels. Mr Navalny died on Friday after spending more than three years in prison, prompting outrage from Western leaders. Benny Gantz, a member of Israel's war cabinet, warned that his country will launch an offensive in Rafah unless Hamas frees all remaining Israeli hostages by the 10th of March. Some 1.5 million Palestinians are sheltering in the southern Gaza city. Domestic tourism spending in China during the Lunar New Year holiday, which ended on Sunday, reached $88 billion, a 47% increase on its pre-pandemic level. The boost comes after Chinese Premier Li Qiang called for pragmatic and forceful action to bolster economic confidence. Christopher Nolan's biopic Oppenheimer took home seven BAFTA awards on Sunday, including Best Film and Best Director. Poor Things was the other standout winner of the ceremony with five wins including Emma Stone's award for lead actress. Those are today's headlines. Back to you, Vincent. Thank you, Carlotta.
0: To Russia now, where Alexei Navalny's family have spent the weekend attempting to recover his body. One of the family's lawyers says he was literally pushed out of the mortuary where he's being kept after allegedly suffering sudden death syndrome at a remote Arctic prison on Friday. Over the weekend, hundreds were arrested after gatherings to mourn Navalny and lay tributes across Russia. In the face of international outrage, Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov is jetting off for a tour of Latin America, beginning with a veteran stalwart ally, Cuba. I'm joined now by Andrew Thompson, a journalist and political risk analyst specialising in Latin America. Andrew, thank you for coming on the show. I'm going to turn to the tour in a moment, but firstly, can you tell me how Navalny's killing is being covered in Latin America?
5: Well it's been covered very prominently in the newspaper and the media but what stands out is that Latin American presidents and politicians have on the whole been quite quiet about it particularly two important presidents um Lula Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva the Brazilian president who is wanted to position himself as a spokesperson for the global south and for a multipolar world deliberately avoided making a comment on Navalny's death. He said, well, he did comment on not commenting. He said, you know, it was much too soon. Uh, one had to wait until the investigation into the causes of death, and therefore it was best not to say anything until the situation became cle- clearer, which most people have seen as a very kind of pro-Russian stance. as kind of trying to deflect the, the criticism of Russia. In the case of Andrés Manuel López Obrador, the populist left-wing president of Mexico, uh, he didn't actually make a statement, but a number of people have noted that he is about to have an interview with a, RT, a prominent RT journalist called Ina Afinogenova. And the fact that he's giving this interview to this prominent pro-Russian uh, journalist is in itself a kind of comment. Uh, it looks like again, um, López Obrador is trying to take a certain distance uh, from the West, from the United States, or what he would consider to be, you know, the uh, the rich and powerful countries that dominate the Western mm-hmm. world. And now, turning to the
0: tour itself, what are Lavrov's intentions?
5: Well. A cynic would say that um, Lavrov wants to attend the G20 meeting uh, in Brazil in Rio de Janeiro, um, and he is taking advantage of this to visit two important allies. But it doesn't look as uh, which are of course uh, Cuba and Venezuela. But it doesn't look as if there is uh, as if there are going to be big announcements or new initiatives. Um, in the case of Cuba, for example. He was last there in um, April, May last year, and he's kind of following up a number of commitments to have closer relations, basically because Cuba is in a very difficult economic situation. Uh, He's proposing things like um, Russian companies will be able to get duty-free imports if they're setting up uh, projects in Cuba that might create uh, local employment. Um, He's talking about collaboration across a range of things, agriculture, fertilisers, uh, infrastructure, and so on. But it looks a pretty much, um, dare I say, it, run-of-the-mill visit.
0: And when it comes to his other stops, he's then on to Venezuela. There's been shifting US policy towards the country uh, in recent times. Uh, is Russia concerned about this?
5: Um, I think Russia is mainly concerned um, to maintain Venezuela as a close an anti-US ally um, and Russia has, if you like, made more of an investment in, in Venezuela than in than in other countries in Latin America. Uh, the, the investment has been through the presence of oil companies, which have a limited role at the moment, but also through arms sales. I mean, there's one calculation that over the last decade or so, um, Russia has spent something like, um, or, or uh, has made available about $10 billion worth of arms and equipment. Um, And that could be quite a a tense situation because um, if you've been following the uh, conflict between Guyana and Venezuela, um, there are sort of saber rattling and threats uh, of troop movements in this very isolated part of the North of South America. So that relationship could become, if you like, uh, internationally controversial. At the moment, it's, um, it's an existing relationship between two authoritarian regimes. And just
0: finally, he's obviously then uh, going on to Brazil. There has been some criticism uh, in the West of Latin America's general position of not really having been very outspoken when it comes to Ukraine, uh, particularly, you know, given uh, it is a war of aggression. uh, Some, you know, will dub it uh, Russian colonialism. Uh, Do you think he might be in for a bit of a tougher time with Lula?
5: Um, In a word, no. I think... um, It's in Lula's interest, Lula's particularly concerned to show himself as not aligned with any bloc. And in his mind, that means um, sort of taking distance, talking about peaceful negotiations uh, and, and not committing himself too closely to the United States, basically. Um, and, and that situation, I think, will continue. Uh, it's unlikely that Lula will say to Sergei Lavrov, uh, quick, you've got to get your act together. It's more likely that they, he will sort of take a kind of, um, can we negotiate? Is there any um, initiative or um, peace discussions that Russia approves of that Brazil, as a fellow member of the BRIC group, um, could facilitate it?
0: Andrew Thompson, thank you. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. You're back with the briefing on Monocle Radio. Well, last week saw global leaders descend on Munich for the city's annual security conference. The Foreign Desk team were there in force, even hosting what Politico dubbed as the gathering's best cocktail party. Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller, joins me here in the
2: studio. Uh, Andrew, how was the week? Uh, hectic to say the very least it's it 's kind of hard to describe what the Munich Security Conference is like from inside, except possibly to say that it 's pretty much what you might expect when you gather several hundred of earth's most powerful people in basically one building in the middle of downtown munich uh, it's it's quite the circus we we went last year and we went again this year and It just sort of seems to compress time, uh, well, journalistic time into itself. In the the normal course of making a programme like the Foreign Desk, if we're interviewing a foreign minister or a defence minister, then that's probably what we're going to be doing that week. Whereas I think on Friday alone, we interviewed three prime ministers, uh, at least two foreign ministers, and I think three or four others I've already forgotten. So very busy. (laughs) And of course, all that time queuing
0: and security as well. Fair Um, bit of that. Yeah. Um, Now firstly, let's just mention uh, there was perhaps purposefully uh, the intervention into the running of things, uh, the announcement of the death of uh, Alexei Navalny. What was the reaction of that?
2: Uh, Yeah, that cast an extraordinary pull uh, over proceedings, as you can probably imagine. It was one of those moments where you could sort of see everybody more or less at the same time reaching into their pocket for their phone. And then, you know, hands would go over mouths and so on. Um, Whether or not the timing was deliberate and you would put nothing past uh, the Russia of Vladimir Putin on that subject. Yeah, and not the least... The effect was magnified, I think, by the fact that obviously uh, Yulia Navalna, his wife, was in attendance uh, and actually spoke a couple of hours uh, after his death was announced. It, It did, I think, have the effect of focusing everybody's attention on what Ukraine most obviously is up against, but also the rest of Europe as well. And
0: going to the main themes of the conference, I think, obviously, the words of Donald Trump when it came to NATO and his effective encouragement of Russia to attack members who he claims weren't paying their bill were ringing, uh, those words ringing in the ears of everyone. Was there a lot of discussion of that at the conference?
2: Yeah, again, it's hard to know how deliberate any of the machinations uh, inside the brains of authoritarians and would-be authoritarians are. But if, if the Munich Security Conference of this year didn't have an overarching theme going into it, then yes, Donald Trump provided it with one. Uh, and people were starting to talk a bit more about the idea that, yes, Europe has been probably complacent about the United States for, well, the entire post-World War II period. And Europe does have to consider the possibility that Europe will not always be a priority of the United States. And that's not necessarily possibly a result of an isolationist authoritarian like Donald Trump being elected president, you can easily imagine a scenario in which the United States becomes much more preoccupied with the Pacific and with China, um, and Europe should be able to look after itself, whether the United States is friendly, hostile, or indifferent. Uh, The difficulty, as always, especially when you have that many countries in one continent, all with their own histories and interests and, in many cases, rivalries, it's a lot easier to say that than actually do it. Mm. Uh, And on that note, uh, support for Ukraine. Uh, It's
0: the 10-year anniversary tomorrow of the initial invasion. And Mm -hmm. on Saturday, it is the two-year anniversary of Putin's special operation. Uh, What was the feeling about how
2: things are going and where they need to go? Uh, Very, very different mood to last year. Last year was the first time we had the Foreign Desk, that is, been to the Munich Security Conference. And what a lot of people talked about last year was the Munich Security Conference the year before. which, of course, happened a matter of days uh, before Russia invaded. I think it was the last time President Zelensky was seen in a suit was when he spoke uh, at the Munich Security Conference two years ago. And... But a year later, it was actually quite optimistic, a lot of the chat about Ukraine, because obviously Russia's initial blitzkrieg to seize Kiev, topple Zelensky uh, and take charge of the country had failed. There was a lot of anticipation about last summer's much vaunted offensive, and there was quite a bullish, optimistic mood. This year, I have to say a lot less certain because the, the offensive did not have the effect it might have hoped. Um, Russia, though still incurring terrible, terrible losses, uh, has adapted and, and obviously the, The conference coincided with the apparent recapture of some, if not all, of Avdivka, which is, given the state of that city, largely a symbolic accomplishment, but symbols matter in war. So a lot more uncertainty. There did strike me that there's a lot of rhetorical uh, understanding that Europe needs to get serious about defence, it needs to regard Russia uh, as a serious menace, but there is a gulf, uh, as any Ukrainian will certainly point out, between saying that and doing it. Mm. Uh,
0: and just turning to the focus uh, around the rest of the world, Taiwan, obviously, uh, a big concern. But were there any other emerging threats or worries that uh, were ramping up the discussion. Uh,
2: Overall, I have to say, we were very surprised by how much Ukraine still dominated it, and we were surprised by that because we expected that there would be a lot more talk about the Middle East. Uh, Maybe it was just the company we we were keeping. We did speak to Israel's ambassador to Germany, and that will be coming up on an upcoming show. Uh, We did have an appointment to speak to Palestine's ambassador to Germany, but that unfortunately has been postponed, and hopefully we will get back to it. But I I was actually quite surprised that it was all still very much Ukraine focused and that's it's understandable at one level because Munich is the it's the big transatlanticist thing and Ukraine is Europe's current preoccupation but given the extent to which the Middle East has you know shovelled Ukraine off the front pages these last 4 months yeah I I was both surprised and I think quite in a way, actually heartened to find out that Ukraine has not been forgotten about. Mm. Well, one of the repercussions of the war in Ukraine,
0: unexpectedly for Vladimir Putin, was that rather than weakening NATO, it strengthened it with the addition of new members. And I believe, Andrew, you spoke to one of those new members.
2: Well, somebody from one of those new members, although... Still not quite a new member yet. Um, This is Anna Wieslander. She's the director uh, for Northern Europe at the Atlantic Council uh, from Sweden originally. And we spoke to her, I think, on our first day there. Uh, And I began by asking Anna whether Sweden was proceeding anyway, as if it's actually a NATO member, despite Viktor Orban still being difficult.
1: Yes well we are proceeding and we as an invitee have interim defense capability targets for instance and we practice a lot with others we have just made an agreement with the US on prepositioning of material and they can use our bases for practicing and so on so we take steps but i think there is an increasing problem and this also affects Hungary as they are part of the alliance mm. that NATO is making their regional plans executable now and Sweden is kind of sketched into those plans but we cannot fully act on them and there is still a red line when it comes to those aspects. It's also not problematic for Sweden in a way. It's problematic for the alliance as well to really fulfil and and go full speed in in the transformation towards stronger deterrence and defence now. And that, that affects the whole alliance, I would argue.
2: But in Sweden's particular case, are we still seeing the... I guess, the unfurling of this change in mindset that began a couple of years ago with the application to join NATO, because I know that the armed forces budget has been increased 28%, which is pretty big. Conscription has been increased. And even on the volunteer front, there has been a huge surge in applications to join Sweden's Home Guard, which is Sweden's Army Reserve. Does it strike you that there has been a a genuine shift in mindset that the Swedish public have bought into?
1: I think it has, finally, yes. And and all of these changes are true and they're very important. But as for the rest of Europe, I mean, we're not alone in that this comes rather late. Mm. Uh, I would argue, you know, Finland and the ones very close to russia they have one sense of emergency or urgency in this while even countries like sweden norway denmark and the rest there is a slight difference we will reach 2% this year i think norway maybe this year denmark not until 2030 so yes there is a shift but you know our supreme commander just the other week uh, had to really underline to the public that you know we cannot exclude the risk of a, of a war that would affect Sweden as well. And that caused a shockwave as well, huge debates and so on. What does it mean by this? And does it have to scare the children and so on? So yes, there was awareness, but uh, it's an ongoing process. But there's been quite a lot of that kind of talk from
2: Sweden's leadership, not just from the military, but from the the prime minister and the defense minister have all been encouraging Swedes to think of this as not a remote or abstract possibility.
1: Yes, they have. I mean, they've been leading on communication there. But still, it's interesting how much communication you need on this, really, in order for really reach out to the public. Because I think ordinary people, they have other things in mind, Sure. you know, and they don't still don't know where the safe room is in their building, and they still don't know whether to, you know, that they can't just run away and move to you know (laughs) some nice country, Thailand or something, that they have a a duty to stay if there is a war in Sweden by law obliged and so on. It's hard to get this communication or information out to the public. So we are working on it and might appear ahead of other countries, but I still think we need to be a bit humble and and continue this work. It's really hard work.
2: But uh, as you were saying, nevertheless, NATO is playing catch up in a number of respects. And I, I wanted to ask about, again, something else you've been writing about recently, perhaps as a means of clawing back some of that ground. This is an idea of a a so-called bubble, deterrence by denial uh, over Northern Europe. What would that mean in practice? How does that work?
1: In practice, it means a little bit copycatting the Russian anti-access area denial bubbles that they created over Kaliningrad and in Mm. the Arctic and so on. So that means that you Just work on, for instance, NATO's integrated air and missile defense combined with the German initiative, European Sky Shield Initiative. That's very important. We can see that in Ukraine also how important it is to have control over the airspace and to be able to, to meet missiles and rockets and other things that come in. It's also a lot about combining and making it work when it comes to intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance. To share data information, to be able to have a common assessment of it, to have sensors connected and so on. To be able to do electronic warfare in a similar way as uh, Russia does, to have long-range striking capability in a way that they do. And that's in particular important, I think, for smaller countries. You know, we can play on the asymmetry Dilemma for Russia, mm-hmm. even if you're a small country, you can strike deeply into russia that of of course complicates the puzzle for for them. so all these things combined with the vision of having solid deterrence, you know we can deny Russia, and if we can send that signal in real terms, it will be a very, very strong deterrent and If we also look at modern warfare, how it's played out, both that it's still seems to be very brutal, <laughs> targeting civilization, but also the risks that new technology, the application of AI or, or these things could cause to societies and the nuclear dimension, which actually Russia is playing at with its nuclear posturing as well. Uh, we have so many reasons to, to really focus on deterrence, but it's costly. And that's a problem, I think.
0: That was Anna Weislander, director for Northern Europe at the Atlantic Council, speaking to Andrew Müller at the Munich Security Conference. Well, the past few days have seen the 40th annual London Fashion Week shows taking place right across the capital. Monocle's fashion editor Natalie Theodosi joins me now. Natalie, how's the week been, and what were your highlights?
6: It's been a really fun week. I've spent uh, Saturday and Sunday going around town to see some of the shows. And, and it was great to see a lot of the designers who I knew since they graduated from Central St. Martins really establish themselves and find an audience and and give and show really confident collections.
0: And uh, sort of it's the younger of the fashion weeks and has a history of being more rebellious. You think of designers like McQueen and, and Westwood. Was that spirit still on display?
6: I think that spirit is still very much on display with the younger generation. I always feel that when I go to see Harry's Reed uh, collection, he's an American designer, but he's established himself here in London and he always takes us to interesting venues. He starts the fashion week. This, this time we went to Tate Modern. And, uh, his collections are based on one of a kind garments, mostly, uh, made using, uh, upcycled garments. And he really has stuck to, to this model, even if it's not the most commercial or more, most popular one. And it's really theatrical, really dramatic. And he does speak about, bringing back showmanship like uh, the Alexander McQueen's and the John Galliano's. But I have to say that given the current climate, I think there's a better understanding of how challenging it is to set up a brand today. There is less and less younger names and therefore maybe a bit less and less of that rebellious spirit in London.
0: Mm. Were there any threads or through lines you spotted in the collections?
6: I don't think there was so much as a trend or a a thread because the idea of a trend is becoming less relevant these days in fashion. But what was interesting is that uh, designers are muting things down a little bit and also staying consistent to what they do best. So in the case of Simone Rocha, who is a very beloved Irish designer here in London, she just sticks to her core aesthetic, which is very romantic dresses, tulle pearls, a a very layered look. There's Molly Goddard, another West London designer, and she's known for a more thrifty look, tulle tool skirts, knitwear, flat ballerina shoes. And they just keep bringing different iterations of that look season after season rather than drastic change from one season to the next. And I think that's worked really well for them. And they might not have huge businesses or worldwide recognition, but at the same time, they have really niche, loyal communities of people who love that aesthetic and who come back and support them season after season. Mm
0: it's uh, been time this year as well with the BAFTA movie awards which took place last night and lots of the stars that were attending we've seen them popping up at different fashion shows do you think that's helped with sort of a boosting of the profile of London Fashion Week
6: it does always help, um, and I think because there is this loyalty around the, the London brands, even if they are a bit smaller, a bit more niche, people do show up uh, at these shows and, and give the designers visibility. There was Rosamund Pike at the Molly Goddard Show dressed in one of her signature Freely dresses. Zadie Smith and Tracy Emmons showed up at um, the Jonathan Anderson Show, which is another very kind of important event of the of the week. And yeah, I think it's great. And, and it's also people show up uh, not for commercial purposes or because there's a contract involved, but because they love the designer and there's genuine support. So it's nice to see.
0: Mm. Uh, and today sees Burberry taking over Victoria Park in East London with a giant circus tent. I saw it the other day. It's quite spectacular. But the brand has been struggling of late, though, hasn't it?
6: It has, yes. I think Burberry is always such an important name, the most commercial, biggest brand in London. So it is a draw for the more international buyers who have to have a commercial reason to visit a a city and a fashion week. So it is important to have them on the schedule. But since uh, Christopher Bailey, its its, uh, beloved creative director, left, I think it's been in a bit of a flux. It tried to rethink its identity a little bit under Ricardo Tisci, which didn't fully work out. And now it's going through another rebrand with Daniel Lee. I think it's positive that it's kind of reclaiming its Britishness, Mm -hmm. but it's still... Relatively early days, and and the the business still needs to find its feet and and exactly identify what its aesthetic and and its uh, Cause messages. Because it they tried to move
0: away from that kind of traditional pattern and the sort of TB pattern that came in in the last exactly. few years. It kind of didn't really seem to work as much. Quite bland sort of redesign of the logo as well, wasn't there? Uh,
6: exactly, and and now there's sort of a move back to uh, a logo that uh, recalls the original one more more and. Uh, there, there's a lot more of the Czech pattern of those classic designs. So um, you'll see a lot more of London on its, in its campaigns, which I think is, is great. Uh, but it, it will take some time until sort of that identity really comes together and the customers kind of come back because they might have been a little bit confused.
0: Mm. Uh, and finally, tomorrow is the start of Milan Fashion Week. What can we expect from Italy?
6: So with Italy, I think you expect a lot more consistency, but still elements of surprise. So what I'm really looking forward is going and seeing sort of those classic shows like the Prada and Fendi, which always deliver, and especially a brand like Prada, even if it's the same show, the same time, the same venue at the Fondazione Prada, but they always find a way to reinvent it and surprise you. It's also going to be the 30th anniversary of Marni, a slightly more eccentric label in the Milan uh, schedule, which is coming back after a few years of showing in New York and Paris. And I'm always looking forward to the Bottega Veneta show as well, a real highlight. It's a more intimate show away from paparazzi and celebrity and spotlight. Mm. And they will be showing at their new headquarters in Milan, which should be really interesting.
0: Natalie, thank you. That was Monocle's fashion editor, Natalie Theodosi. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Emma Searle. Our researcher was Neoma Ekwe. And our studio manager was Mariella Bevan. The briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Goodbye and thank you for listening.